Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Please uh, open your Bible to Psalm 90, and you can go to the bulletin too, although the bulletin doesn't have verse numbers, uh, and it'll be helpful to be able to follow along. Uh, This is a Psalm of Moses, uh, almost certainly writing in the latter third of his life as he wanders in the wilderness with Israel. And so let's listen to him this morning, and uh, thus we'll recall again the conditions uh, in which we live and uh, learn what we should want in those conditions, uh, what we should be asking for from this life. Okay, so we there in Psalm 90, I take the hour... In our dwelling place, to refer to mankind. And so in this psalm, I think Moses is speaking as a human being, uh, more than the member of any particular community. Uh, And he says, the Lord has been our dwelling place, our home in all generations. So God is our home. How can someone be a place? You might have heard the expression, uh, it's so-and-so's world, we're just living in it. Uh, it's Tom, Tom, uh, Tom Brady's world, we're just living uh, here in it. Uh, meaning, everything is really about Tom. Uh, he's setting the pace Everything revolves around him, including us. And uh, sometimes we use phrases like the iPhone decade, uh, the, Ma- the Madonna decade, which was a while ago, the century of the British, of the British Empire. Uh, it's COVID-19's world. We're just living in it. Uh, you might have heard stuff. But uh, that's close to what is being said here. We're living in God's space. His, his actions, his reactions, his, his decisions are what's stamped on this world. Every generation lives in the effects and the after effects of what he has done and what he has chosen. It's his world. Moses might have said, it's Pharaoh's world, we're just, living, we're just living in it. Or since they're marching through the wilderness as he's writing, he could have said something like, sand, wind, heat, that's what it's all about. That's all I experienced. But he, instead, he confesses, Adonai, you have been our dwelling place in every generation. You're the context. We cannot escape you. 
No generation can leave you behind. Every generation lives in reference to you and not the other way around. So this is God's world. Uh, if things were as they should be, every year comes out the times person of the year, the person who's made a difference. If things were as they should be, every year times person of the year would be God. 2016, God. 2017, God, etc., etc. I read about a scene from the Cosby show. Uh, Vanessa, one of the daughters, comes home from school after being in a fight uh, with a couple of the girls who had called her a, quote, stuck-up rich girl. And, of course, Cliff, the father, wants to know who was winning the fight, and he was proud to hear that it was his daughter. Uh, And, of course, Claire, the mother, is annoyed by Cliff's shallowness. Um, But eventually, Vanessa, the daughter, complains None of this would have happened if we weren't so rich. And her parents just stare at her for a second. And then Cliff, he kind of sits up and he folds his hands and he says, let me get get something straight, okay? Your mother and I are rich. You have nothing. And you can tell your friends and your enemies that, okay? Okay? And then he gives his daughter a smile. Point being, if this is somewhat true about parents and kids, how much more humans and the creator? In ourselves, we own nothing. Actually, we are not. If we couldn't come home to God's nature and will and his actions and his, co- and his commitments... We'd have nowhere to go. The second half of Moses' sort of basic statement about God speaks about his unchanging life. God doesn't develop at all. No part of him ever slips. Actually, he has no parts. He is always, in every moment... Perfectly, fully God. In his consolation of of, of, uh, philosophy, Boethius gives a compact statement. He said, God's eternity is the whole, simultaneous, and perfect possession of boundless life. In attempting to capture God's always is Godness, Moses refers to the mountains. Some people have grown up around, in the Midwest, maybe around vast fields, and some next to the ocean. Some, like many of you, have grown up close to the mountains. The look of the fields changes throughout the year. The sea kind of ebbs and flows. The mountains, the same. Morning after morning, 
Sometimes stuff is falling on them, but they themselves don't alter a bit. And Moses says in verse 2 that before even these mountains were spawned, that, that, that's really the word, spawned, and it's, and it's a verb that kind of jars us into realizing that these fixed, heavy, silent sen- sen- uh, sentinels weren't always there, but were themselves preceded and caused, and they were begotten thereby a being who is much older, actually who is, quoting again, unbounded by time. So, older than dirt, Moses says, actually the maker of dirt from everlasting to everlasting, outside of time, unrestricted by its boundaries, God. God's eternity is the whole simultaneous and perfect possession of boundless life. So at the beginning of this psalm, Moses is laying down the sheer godness of God. And he's he's reorienting us to the bare fact that we are dwellers in him and not the other way around. We're not his suppliers. We're not his publicity agents. We're not by our piety or our, worship, uh, or our worship keeping him intact. And so talking about or thinking about God is hard because there is no one like him. God is not like us. He's not, not just a little more than what we are. That's the old phrase, to whom shall you compare me? Okay, so there we go. But notice, though, as we go forward, that Moses isn't writing this to assemble some deep truths about God. He speaks thus about God in order to raise some problematic truths. A couple of them, actually. The first one is in verses 3 through 6. Where Moses says, in summary, our lives are short. And God, the eternal God, is the cause. Verse 3, Moses says, God sends man back to dust. Man made from dirt returns to dirt. And actually, no, don't say it like that. That's too passive, returns to dirt. The eternal God commands him to go back to the ground. Return, O children of man. God orders our death. God, who himself is unburdened by time, intentionally shortens our life. Verse 4 Moses stresses this contrast between God and us in in order to highlight how scandalous these facts are. God lives long, and he makes our lives short. Moses shows how the passage of time, it doesn't affect God by contrasting perspectives. God views a thousand years 
Think of a thousand years. Births, the deaths, the inventions, nations rise and decline and fall, the plagues, the wars, the fashions, the classics written and, you know, and they're probably not read, holidays, the joys, the griefs, etc., etc., etc. God views all of that like we remember Saturday. And just take a second to reflect on what happened yesterday. And that's how God overviews a thousand years. And it's all so vividly understandable to God, all that huge sweep of time, because for him, that span is very small. A thousand years isn't a long time. In verse 5, and yet God, with all his boundless life and his, and his uh, command over time and mastery and freedom over time, he wields all of that to drive us away from life. That's what Moses is saying. He says we're like a branch being driven by a flash flood. You can see that torrent going down the street on this little branch going along with it. That's us. And there's nothing we can do to resist God's force in taking us away from health and memory and friends and family. And Moses, as he's writing this, he had plenty of experience with this. He probably, as I said, wrote this during the wilderness travels when an entire generation of Israel died. And there must have been hardly any seniors around. And funeral after funeral after funeral. Moses also says, he just, he, he, he's piling up the metaphors here, he says... People are like a dream. Or maybe better rendered, they're like a sleep. That's a funny phrase. They're like a sleep. Or you engulf them like sleep. And what Moses seems to be saying here is, it is something like, first we live this kind of groggy existence, and then we hit the long sleep. That's life. And we're always, as I say, fighting off drowsiness. Probably some of you right now. (laughs) There's a great line, uh, if you know poetry, I I don't blame you if you don't, but T.S. Eliot said, he said, we are are children quickly tired. That's how he summarized humans. We are children quickly tired. We have to fight through this afternoon Ennui, this blase. Even if we don't, brothers and sisters, even if we don't get hit by a truck or the, an, the aneurysm, it doesn't bust up our brain or the artery doesn't e- explode or the plague doesn't come to get to us, eventually the big sleep will arrive. And that's what Moses is saying. In verse 6, he says, it all happens so fast. You're getting stuffed animals for your birthday. You're faking sick to stay home from school. Kids, well, we got a lot of home, we got a lot of homeschoolers here. Anyway, 
You're climbing trees. You're, you're a big dog on the, foot, on the football team or on the soccer team. You're dating. And then you blink. And it's tough to get a good night's sleep. And you find yourself weepy all the time. And in the back of your mind, you, you're wondering if you've told this story before. And then, boom, the sleep. And that's the trajectory, Moses says, of everyone. <laughs> everyone. And, no, that, uh, that's fine. Here's the, here's the scandal. God's behind it. God, who, 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 who has complete mastery over time. And then, so our lives are short, even though God is long, and this is because of God. And then ver- the second thing that Moses raises, which is kind of dismal, death comes soon for us because, verses 7 through 11, God is angry at our sin. Verse 7, God doesn't accidentally allow man to die. He is angry at us, and we die under his anger. Decline and death are not natural to the human condition, but are a result of God's opposition. Death, here it is, death is God's, his, his, his disapproving no over humanity. In verse 8, what draws out God's anger is our sin. You know, if, if you want to be taken seriously, okay, here's some good news. You're being taken seriously. God takes you seriously, and he searches us, and he discovers those wicked moods and those unjust imaginations that we hardly take notice of, and those slightly crooked attitudes and those words that are meant to malign or to cut or to entrap, words that are tinged with haughtiness or self-righteousness or self-justification, and all of these that might be way too subtle for others and even ourselves to trace, he holds these. This is what the text says. He holds these up to the light of his perfection. Verse 9, I think the thought here is, every day we live under the sun, and every day, just so, just so, every day we live under the wrath of God. It is a constant. It is the terrain. You know how you can call up information about the photos you take on your smartphone? Yes, date, file size, location, Well, if the photo information were to tell the whole story, it would say something like, September 8th, 2016, Chatfield State Park, wrath. That's how we live. That's how we spend our days. And this is what Moses is... uh, uh, So is there a lament in here? Most definitely. And so God's wrath is beating down on you. And it's wearing out your heart and your lungs and your brain. And eventually, you're going to squeak out one last breath. And Moses says, let's call that a sigh. 
Because your final breath is linked to pain and unhappiness. Another T.S. Eliot line, this is how life ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. So verse 10, Moses just keeps thinking about the time, the time, the time. God has so many days. For him, a thousand years is like 24 hours. No, three hours. But man, 70 years. He gets 70. If he's strong, make it 80. It's amazing how this number, I mean, whenever Moses wrote this, how this number has held up these numbers for the past 3,500 years. Uh, in the world today, the world, life expectancy of, of uh, females, 75.6 years. Males do a little bit more work, so they're 70.8 years. Oh, that, was, that was bad. I take it all back. Males, 70.8 years, but everyone, 73.2 years. And he wants to leave us that their span is but toil. The, the, you know, the younger you are, you might be thinking 70 to 80 years. Well, I, that's I, okay. That's still a lot of time. But, but those years are filled with toil and trouble. You get caught. The wheelbarrow falls over. You're weeding in the hot sun. You have a guilty conscience sometimes. You're not ready for the test. The bird poops on you. You, you go through grief that's uninteresting to everyone except for you. Your teeth are yellow. You sit around a table and you don't really know how to talk clearly to express things. You don't know if you should be talking now or the other person should be talking. Other people get picked before you for the for the. The, the, the bombardment zits. You get shoved. You want things. There's not enough time. You waste time. You're always cleaning. You got expenses. You dread the dentist. You're stuck in a house you don't like. Kids embarrass you. You got to buy Christmas gifts, which is a trial. You you live during a long, a long, a long societal uh, uh, decline. You get bullied, more zits. Get behind on math. Shame. Your drains are slow. Your stomach flab that doesn't leave you. Regrets. What ifs. And then, then we fly away. <laughs> so most, it's that, that's, I, I wasn't, this is what happens. And then we're gone. We used to take walks with Teddy at night, our Newfoundland. And uh, on the route, we, we'd come into it. This is in Boston. We'd come into this big field and there were all these, these there were always these geese grazing and pooping. <laughs> and uh, Teddy would, he was always off the leash. We always keep our dog off the leash. Uh, Teddy would chase after them, and they all kind of fly away, honking in an angry way. And, and that's the imagery here. There's toil and trouble, and then we're surprised by death. That's it. That's life. 
Are we having a nice day? <laughs> and so verse 11, Moses seemed to be, he seems here to be saying one thing in two different ways. He says, in the first line, he says, who can know the power of the, the sorry, the strength of your wrath? And I think what he's saying here is no one properly calculates just how much God's anger affects the conditions of the world. And which, in, in, in a way, puts a shadow over the opening line. Lord, you've been our dwelling place. Now that seems kind of an ominous phrase. Moses is saying, your anger has made the bed and it's furnished the house and it's set the table of our lives. That's the condition. And in the second line of verse 11, as the fear of you, so is your anger. That is, if people fear you, they're smart because you, particularly your anger, is indeed the threat that looms over us. Okay. But now the psalm takes an unexpected turn. Do you agree in verse 12? It takes an unexpected turn because so far Moses has contrasted the many days of God with the short span of man's life. He says that our brief and troubled life is due to the fact that God is angry at our sin. And yet now he starts to ask God for stuff. In the middle of your anger, as Moses says, listen to our prayer and help us. Do you get that? Do you, do you see how striking that is? And uh, so Moses obviously believes, here it is, here's key. Here we're making a turn in the sermon, you, gotta, you got to focus. Moses obviously believes that God's anger isn't his ultimate or even his primary mindset toward us he prays because he believes god hears his prayer and is open to answering him in short he believes that that despite the conditions he's in yet he is in a favorable and stable relationship with god and we could even use the big phrase, he's in a covenant with God. In spite of the conditions. Do you understand? We good? And so Moses is confident toward God. And that Moses' confident in his secure relationship to God is well-founded is born out in the final scenes of his life, which are awesome. Do you remember that? Moses actually trudges up one of those mountains that he referred to at the start of this psalm. And he, see, he is given to see the land, which is the emblem of a lasting permanence that will be granted to humanity. And there, on that mountain, he dies. And who buries him? Do you remember? 
It's Jehovah himself who buries him. Just think about that in light of this psalm. How better to demonstrate that God, in the midst of anger and death, is in the long term committed to his human creation. I like to imagine the scene, Jehovah intoning over the grave of Moses. We now commit our friend Moses' body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform your frail body, that you may be conformed to his glorious body, who died, was buried, and rose again for you, to him be glory forever. And so, yes, ultimately, this covenant with God rests on the work of Jesus Christ. Someone said, some musician, or maybe it wasn't a musician, but some, I, I heard it attributed to Mozart, who said, the, 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 the music is not in the notes but in the silence between the notes. And in similarly, the name of Jesus doesn't show up in this psalm, but he is in back of this psalm. He's in back of that turn. We said that death is God's, God's uh, his disapproving no over humanity. And Jesus Christ, his last word to humanity is yes to humanity. To those who believe that Jesus is from God, that he speaks for him, the Holy Spirit is taking us into the death and resurrection and the future of Jesus Christ. And God's yes is spoken over our existence. Yes? Is that good? Yeah. And so, all who are here today, dealing with uh, usual suspects today, but the, just, it's always the same. The, the, the Spirit of God, who, who engendered those ancient mountains that Moses spoke of, who, who, who formed us in our mother's womb, who has presided over our life, who has wired into us the longing for, per, for per, per, uh, permanence and to be taken up into this boundless life of God. Uh, you can bend low to the scriptures and listen to what is being said to all of us today. And that's this word, come The Spirit says to each one of us, come. Don't look for a house to feel at home in. It's very important. Don't nostalgically attempt to get back to some time in your past or to another sort of era in the history of this country. No, the Spirit says, come. Come and listen to the Word of God. Come to the announcement of what God has done and has been doing 
all the way up to and through the propitiating death of Jesus, who himself died under the wrath of God. And so Jesus, our Savior, who will bring us to permanence and rest, he's in the back of this psalm. And yet, one more brief section. And yet, now, even in Jesus Christ, still, to quote Paul, the body is dead because of sin. In our bodily existence, even now, even we who are in Christ, we still encounter, we, we come up to the residue of God's anger against sin. Which presents, just as Moses has described earlier in the psalm, which is a pain and toil and a short life. So Moses, likes, like us, lives in the overlap of a committed covenant with God and feeling the impact of his anger against sin. But here's the thing, and here's what I want to leave us with today. In this overlap, Moses knows there is grace to be had. We have access to grace if we just ask for it, and Moses models the asking for what does Moses ask? And we'll just race through this um, to, to answer the question in our painful and tedious existence, knowing that God is ultimately for us, what do we need? And there it is in verse 12. First, Moses requests that God would teach him and, and, and uh, the, the others us to remember these things to what he's just been talking about to let these things shape their perspective about their lives give us wisdom in these things teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom let us consider our days thus as he's just been talking about number one don't let us act as if we have all the time in the world May we think and plan as if life were short. Number two, teach us to expect trouble and tedium in this life and not be overwhelmed or amazed when it comes to us. Number three, especially help us to associate our pain and trouble with you. The troubles of our life don't indicate there's not, there, there is no God but rather that we are sinners living in God's world. Verse 13, a petition that's big and, and general, return. God's anger expressed by his absence. He leaves us alone. As Romans 1 says, God gives them up to work things out themselves. And Moses says, come back, God. Brothers and sisters, what we want is the presence of God. Verse 14. Underneath verse 13's big general request are particular appeals in verses 14 through 17. 
First of all, in verse 14, let us early on in our lives receive your steadfast love, the particular kindness to enter into the long story of your commitment to humanity to care for us in body and soul. Let us come to know you. Save us from being separated from the author of life and promise to be with us every morning and afternoon and night. And Moses says, if you bring us into your promise and give us the sense to appreciate that gift for what it is, we'll have what it takes to rejoice in all the seasons and happenings of life. Second phrase of verse uh, verse 14. In short, let us and our children come to know you and your works of steadfast love at an early age. It's a great request. Return, O Lord. Let us and your children know you quickly, soon, from youth. Verse 15, trouble and toil indeed are baked into this 70 or 80 year existence. We got it. But as just as much, this is a great prayer request, just as much as that is true, let us also in the middle of the toil and the trouble and even the tragedy, let us also experience gladness. You know, you, you, you look back at hard seasons of your life, and if, if, if God has been merciful to you, they're not completely bleak. You look back, uh, I dare to say, in a way, fondly. Moses has the imagination and the chutzpah to think that happiness, this, just understand this, brothers, happiness, contentment, and pleasure can exist alongside and maybe even within all the trouble. And he asks for that. It's a great request. Another example of something the Bible repeatedly posits is that there can be great joy among great pain. And you should ask for it. Verse 16 Moses not only asks for God to return, he goes further and he asks for God to confide in, to to divulge what he's been up to. Let your servants and their children see your work. Ah, these are great requests. Being exposed to God's work me, must be something important, valuable. Otherwise, Moses wouldn't be asking for it in these extreme circumstances. Seeing God's work is an ingredient of the gladness and satisfaction of the previous verses. I, I've been a, I, I was a pastor for a long time, and sometimes I would have the, I don't know, honor, whatever, of visiting people at their workplace. And uh, just about a year ago, I visited a church member named George Maxo, uh, who worked at the Massachusetts Water Resource Authority in, uh, ch- in, uh, North, in North Boston. 
And I, I saw him there, and he had his hard hat on, and uh, saw his colleagues, met some of them, toured the plant that was being renovated, and uh, yeah, saw the whole thing. And so what before was an abstraction, George goes to work, now became real to me. And I have detailed memories. Does that make sense? And that's exactly what is being asked for. It's one thing to hear that God is the creator and that the great work of the Lord today is in making disciples and building his church, that God is sanctifying his, his, uh, his children. But it's another thing, and it's a gift from God. It's a kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a disclosure of God. When he does his saving and his sanctifying work right in front of you. When he allows us to be aware that he's the creator and he is the eternal one. And instead of feeling threatened by that, you come to enjoy that. Do you understand what I'm saying? To, to, to come into his work, uh, it's a, this might be too lofty of a reference, but it's not a bad reference. Jonathan Edwards um, he talked about what changed before and after he knew the Lord. I'm going to read you something. This is what he wrote. He, he, he was one for big words, thought too much. Wouldn't it be a great party guy? Okay, but here it is. And scarce anything among all the works of nature was so sweet to me as thunder and lightning. He says, formerly, nothing had been so terrible to me. Before, I used to be uncommonly terrified by thunder and to be struck with terror when I saw a thunderstorm rising. Wimp. Anyway, but that, but that was his case. But now, on the contrary, it rejoiced me. I felt God, so to speak, at the first appearance of a thunderstorm. When he saw a thunderstorm, he thought, God, wow. And used to take the opportunity at such times to fix myself in order to view the clouds and see the lightnings play and hear the majestic and awful voice of God's thunder which oftentimes was exceedingly entertaining, leading me to sweet contemplations of my great and my great and and glorious God. While thus engaged, it always seemed natural to me to sing or chant for my meditations or to speak my thoughts in soliloquies with a singing voice. There's someone who used to know God and feel threatened by him, him and his works, and now he's come to just enjoy. Moses is asking for that in the middle of this painful existence to enjoy God like that. Okay, and then finally, uh, um, well, let me just finish that out. To, to be in the middle, I say, of God building up his church to experience, even from a young age, answered prayer, God's provision, life's changed. And to sense that God is opening up his word to you to understand it more, that you are being disciplined and have the attention of your, of your heavenly father, 
I mean, that's where it's at. So, so that if someone would say to you, there's no God, it's just a, con- it's just a construct to organize, to organize society or you know, whatever. You, I mean, you would say, no, he, he, he lives. He, he, he's at my heart. Anyway, may us and our children hear the shepherd's voice and know him and follow him. And then finally, verse 17. The, finally, the request is for the particular favor of God lending permanence to our work. That establish the work of our hands. Again, you, you think of that word establish in light of what Moses has been you know, talking about, the transience of life. We are here for a short time, and that's not going to change. But if during our momentary life, the eternal God will meet us and sit down beside us and train our hands to work, we can do something that will last. And that's what we want. We want permanence in our work. My dad grew up in an agnostic home, and he didn't become a Christian until my mom forced him to by saying, you either pray or else you can't date me, or it was something like that. Anyway, he's been gone almost 21 years now. He didn't even make it close to, close to, to 70 my dad accomplished some cool things pro, 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 professionally. Uh, he was the first uh, computer science doctorate from Ohio State. Um, he was the first and maybe still the only uh, person to have been a vice president over three, three departments at, Law, at Lockheed Martin. Uh, at his funeral, a colleague said that 29,000 employees answered to him. I say that all of that to say this. Those 29,000 employees probably didn't know him. Some probably didn't care for his leadership. Most of the ventures my dad presided over are long past, collecting dust, obsolete. I, I have his dissertation, and I know that in today's world, that's like cave, cave, cave drawings. Um, but the church people knew another side of my dad. I recall a fellow named Doug Sheets saying that my dad was the person that would clean the toilets during the work days at church. Um, when my brother... Um, at the church in Boston, had taught junior church. Um, I was reminded of sitting in my fourth grade Sunday school class, taught by my dad. And what the church folks knew of my dad was actually who he really was. My dad grazed in this agnostic, you know, Francophile home, classical music. Not even, you couldn't even play rock, play, play rock, not even, not rock, not, you couldn't play rock That was too, that was too emotional there from my dad's home. But my dad had come to believe the word of God very simply like a child. 
he made Christ's church a higher priority than his career. I saw that. I was, there was no question. Every Sunday morning, he left for church before the rest of the family. I, with I recall as a teenager showing up at church one morning, and he told me a little bit embarrassedly, a little proudly also, that he had been pulled over for speeding on the way to church. It was just a memory. But he led his boys into obedience and service, whether they followed or not. But I did grow up under the clear notion that serving the local church is something respectable and is a big part of someone's life. When I lived at home, on those rare, rare occasions when I, would wake up, when I would wake up early in the morning, I'd stumble past the little office and see my dad always in there, sitting on his green chair, reading the Bible and praying. It was just like clockwork. Anyway, all of that to say, I, I reflect that today my dad has 16 grandkids, most of whom he's never met. The youngest over there is 10 years old. So my dad's boys, three boys, grew up marked by their father's work in the Lord, had these 16 grandkids, and now these grandkids are themselves growing up, dating, they are getting married, will soon be having their own children. And they'll scatter throughout the world. Having been taught the word of God and having been shown the example of serving the church through their fathers who learned it from their father. And what those kids will do with it uh, is a question. That's what Moses, that's an example of what Moses is saying. Yes, yes, establish the work of our hands. So brothers and sisters, in the middle of trouble, life, during the short time we have, look to God for the grace of gladness and permanence. A grace that is brought to us, that has been made available to us through the peace of God by Jesus Christ.